You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Why don't you go ahead and tell someone the, the title of my sermon this morning, Faith versus Faith. Faith versus Faith. Just uh, want to say a big thank you to Pastor Paul Tuck, who came in last week to preach the word to our congregation. Of course, most, uh, some of us, or a majority of our team was at, in Alberta at, at Brother William's wedding, and uh, it was a great time, and uh, definitely glad and a joyful time to, to see our Brother William finally get uh, married. But it's, I'm glad to be back here in the house of the Lord and back in, with our, our members this morning. Now, in terms of our word this morning, in my personal Devo times, I've been going through sort of difficult passages in Scripture as a sort of exercise to, to bring me up to speed or to, be, to bring myself to a better understanding and, and equip myself uh, and, my, and solidify my convictions in these difficult passages. And I think oftentimes, right, whenever we, we get into God's Word, our, our first choice is often the easy passages, the passages that, that make us feel good or, or are easy to understand. But it's also important, very important, to study the, the hard passages of Scripture as well. Because as believers, we're called to, to make a defense, to be prepared, to give a defense for the hope that we believe in. And this passage this morning in the, 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 the letter of James is one of those controversial, very debated about passages especially for those who hold the conviction of, uh, of justification by faith alone. Oftentimes this passage is used by those who believe in justification by works. If you've ever uh, witnessed or evangelized to maybe a Roman Catholic or some sort of tradition that holds to the view of we are saved by our works, by good works, they'll point to this passage in James. See Justified by works, according to James. And if you're not ready or you're not prepared or you're not equipped to answer that, well, oftentimes we, we, we will slip up or, or we won't know how to answer it. Because really, at face value, that's, it, that seems what, that, that, that's sort of what it seems like what James is saying, right? Look at verse 20 again of our passage. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Then verse 24 he says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Sounds pretty clear, right? How do we answer that? For those of us who believe that justification is by faith alone, how do we answer the claims that James is making in his letter? I think oftentimes our knee-jerk reaction is to point to the, the, to the letters of Paul, right? But Paul says in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it's, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. We'll point to Paul's letter. But Galatians chapter 2 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Pretty clear. Or maybe Romans chapter 3, For by works of the law no human will be, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And I think those passages are very important 
for us to know and memorize when we are giving a defense. But it still leaves us with this passage in James, this passage in Scripture that seemingly says otherwise. And what we end up doing is, is if we answer that way, if we point to the letters of Paul, we paint Scripture as inconsistent or even contradictory. James says this, but Paul says otherwise. And for someone who believes justification by works, the person you're speaking to, most likely they already don't believe in the the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Oftentimes, those who believe in justification by works, they have a presupposition that Scripture is not authoritative. But we want to bring them to that ideology, right? We want them to come to where we're at and and see Scripture as the authoritative, authoritative word of God, inerrant. So I think it's highly important to know what this passage says, what James actually means, to clarify what he means in our passage, as to convince in those debates, as to convince the opponents of justification by faith from this passage itself. And really, that's easy enough to do. Even from such, a, from such a controversial passage as James, as we'll see in, 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 our, in, in, our, in our sermon this morning, James is actually very much consistent with the rest of Scripture. He's not contradicting it. Not because the rest of Scripture says justification by works. That's not what, that's not what Scripture says. But rather, James himself, James himself affirms Justification by faith. Look with me at James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. Let me show you this. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Then listen to what he says. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of, its, of his creatures. What's James saying here? First and foremost, he's saying, of his, talking about God here, of his own will, he brought us forth. This is the act of regeneration, being born again, the monergistic work of God, his, by his own will, brought us forth. That being born again brought us forth into salvation, not by the will of man, Not by the efforts of man, but by the will of God. There's parallels to this, to to John's own gospel, when when John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. James is pointing to the monergistic work of God to save sinners. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. By the word of truth. What is that? It's, it's the gospel. It's, it's scripture. And according to Paul, the only way for one to be saved by the word of faith, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The only way for one to be saved through the word of God is by faith. It's not by works. So James, in his own letter, affirms the monergistic work of God to regenerate the lost, to, to cause the sinner to be born again, 
So then now the question is, what is he talking about then in chapter 2? If, if, if James is affirming salvation by faith alone, what's chapter 2 about then? Does James then sort of contradict himself? Maybe change his mind halfway through his letter? No. Again, our position is that the Bible is inerrant. It does not contradict itself. It is without error. All scripture, again, is God-breathed. These are the very words of God. God does not lie. So James is not doing sort of a 180 turn and change of position in the middle of his letter. No. In reality, James is not talking about justification by works at all in chapter 2. Far from it. He's not talking about salvation by works in chapter 2. What James is doing is contrasting between two kinds of faith. One that is active and that bears much fruit, that fruit being good works, versus a faith that is artificial, that is fake, that is all lip service, that is simple knowledge of God's truth, but, but bears no fruit. That's, that's what James is talking about. Look at verse 14, again, of our, of, our, of our main passage here. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? This is what this entire chapter hinges on. James is referring to someone who claims to be in the faith. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Claiming to be a follower of Christ simply by word of mouth. But yet has no works. Again, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Works, as we'll see here in our passage, refers to the external fruit of conversion, the outward works of righteousness that prove that we have truly been regenerated inwardly. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Then he asks, very plain and simple, can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith that has no external fruit, is that salvific faith? Can that faith save him? That's what James is getting at here. The faith that produces no fruit, is that kind of faith, is that evidence of true and genuine conversion? And what follows in, our, in, in this passage is James arguing that no, that's, that's not real faith. And in, in the process, he compares that, that fake, that, that inactive faith to what is real faith. The characteristics, the characteristics of real and active faith. Again, this is why this entire passage is faith versus faith. An active faith versus an artificial faith, according to James now, the hope for us this morning is to break down our passage and clarify any misunderstandings about this, this, this text that we have in order to equip us, better equip us, for whenever we have those conversations, whenever someone points to this passage and says, see, we're justified by works. Again, that's not what James is getting at. But also to see the comparisons, the characteristics that James is bringing up in our passage between the, the, the differences between the, that, that artificial faith and that active faith in order to test ourselves, to test our faith, to see if our faith is really the, the kind of faith that James is talking about in our passage. Because 
Really, the entirety of James' book is a, book, is, is a litmus test. is a litmus test to see if whether or not our faith is real, whether or not our conversion is real. He's writing for that purpose, for readers to examine their own faith. So, so the hope is to put ourselves through that same test to compare our faith with the comparisons that James makes. So we have a lot to cover, so let's jump into our passage. First, some some context for us this morning. Who is James writing to? Who is James writing to? This is very important. James is writing to Jewish converts, Jewish believers. And we see this from James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, it reinforces the idea that James is not advocating for salvation by works. Why? Because the Jewish faith was a faith or religion of salvation by works. The Christian faith, when Christ came, when the disciples brought out the gospel, it was a radical shift in ideology. The Jewish people were, were, were trying to please God, trying to get right with God, trying to be justified by God, by the many works they had according to the law. But when Christ came, it, 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 the disciples introduced the gospel that it's by faith alone do we get right with God. So what that means is, why would then James tell his Jewish readers to go back to the slavery of, of dead works, the ones that they practiced before in the Jewish faith? Again, James is not pushing for a justification by works theology. Now, though the means of salvation is different between the Christian faith and the Jewish faith, what we see is that the practice, the fruit of that real faith, is very much similar, very much similar to the Jews. James says in chapter 1, verse 27, again, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. These are Old Testament principles. The fruit that believers are to bear are the same principles, the same expectations that we see in the Old Testament to take care of the widows and the orphans, to keep one unstained from the world, to, to pursue holiness is what James is getting at. So the Jewish context is very important to our understanding, uh, especially when we're, when we're addressing these topics. Again, now imagine if you're a Jewish convert. Going back to our passage here, imagine Jewish, you're, you're a Jewish convert. You're so accustomed to the, the works-based religion of, 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 of Judaism, and now you've entered into this faith-based theology. The mindset would be, well, I don't have to do any good works anymore, right? I'm saved by faith, so I don't have to do these good works anymore. I don't need to help out the orphans. I don't need to pursue holiness anymore. I'm saved by faith. I can live the way I want because in my heart, I believe. That's the mentality that James is trying to correct here. It's why in chapter 1, he addresses being doers of the word and not hearers only. You know, that, that, that phrase right there, being doers of the word and not hearers only, is an Old Testament principle. He's calling his Jewish brothers back to these principles that was cultivated in the Old Testament. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, 
There's no Hebrew word for obedience. There's no Hebrew word for obedience. The word in, 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 in Hebrew, the closest thing that is used in Scripture is Shema, to hear, to hear. Because the idea was that if you heard God's command, the natural inclination, the, the natural response should be that you obey. So whenever you hear the word obedience in the Old Testament, it's really to hear. Because because you've heard, it means you will obey. That's what James is calling his brethren back to. He's saying just as you learn in the Jewish faith that if you have heard the word of God, the command of God, that you will obey the command of God. It's like if a king told you to do something, the expectation is that you would do it. There's no ifs and or buts, right? It's like, well, can I compromise a bit? No. Now multiply that by infinity. It's the creator of the universe, holy, holy, holy God. If he commands you to do something, the, 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 our response ought to be that we obey. So, so again, this is what, what James is calling his, 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 his readers to, his Jewish readers to, and chapter two builds upon that principle. If you have truly heard and believed the gospel, then your life will have changed. There will have to be a transformation in your life. You'll do something different. You'll, you'll behave a different way. So let's unpack our passage now. We'll go to verse 14. It says, again, verse 14 of our passage, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? Again, referring to that, that faith that doesn't produce any fruit. He's making that comparison to, to the real kind of faith. And then he, he draws an illustration here. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and then one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The illustration that James is drawing here is, is that of compassion. Compassion without action is not compassion at all. It's one thing to say, oh, I feel sorry for your situation. Oh, wow, you don't have food. You know, go in, go in peace, brother, Right? But then you don't help a person. That's not compassion at all. Compassion needs an outward work. It needs action to actually be compassion. And so now James is saying it's the same thing with faith. It's the same thing as he says, so also faith by itself, if it, does not have, if it doesn't have works, it is dead. It's, mere, it's merely a confession. You're merely saying that you're a believer. But there's no fruit, there's no evidence of it in your life. There's no transformation, there's no behavioral change, there's no mental change. It's just, just by word of mouth, lip surface. This brings us to the first distinction between real faith and this sort of fake faith that James is talking about here. Listen, real faith produces. Real faith produces. It produces fruit. Fake faith does not produce fruit. That's what James is talking about here. And again, that fruit that James is talking about is good works. James is referring to the fruit of genuine salvation. Though we are not saved by works, we are saved for good works. Understand that. 
We're not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. This great Reformation passage that, that solidifies our convictions here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then, look what Paul says after. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, bearing fruit is a distinctive of the believer, of someone who has truly been changed in the heart. Someone who's truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's how we bring glory to God. Jesus himself says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And he says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See, the external fruit is, again, evidence of that internal work of God in us. That God has truly regenerated us. That God has truly caused us to be born again. And it's only natural for those who have this new nature, this, this life that has been changed by the gospel, to develop or produce external fruit. Good works. To choose the things of God. And we know this in, in, in Paul's letters. We read about the, the fruit of the Spirit, Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things are, is, is no law. Now, those things that we just listed out, the, the fruit of the Spirit, though they are internal roots, joy is inside, right? They produce external fruit. You have joy in your heart, but that demonstrates in a demeanor outside, right? You have patience inside you, but that is, that is communicated externally when you're sitting in the traffic waiting on the red light to change. You have self-control inside of you, but that is visible through how you steward the things that you have in this life. So though the, the fruit of the Spirit is internal, they demonstrate themselves externally. Now you have to think about this, right? Have you ever seen someone who had joy but walk around with a, with a, like a scowl on their face. I've got the joy, 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 joy. Jesus in my heart. That doesn't compute. Or I got the peace of past understanding and they're worrying all the time. The fruit of the Spirit is internal, but it, it, it demonstrates, it shows, us, shows up externally. Now, no doubt, there are people who, who can fake the, the externals, right? They can come to church, dress all nice, three-piece suit, and put on a smile. Hey, brother, hey, sister, praise the Lord. Very easily, very easily. But as we'll see later on in our passage, what will distinguish someone who's fake and someone who's real is when trials come. Because that tone will quickly change. It's why James says in verse 17 of our passage, so also, so also faith by itself, if it does not have work, works, it is dead. It's dead. Because there's no roots for the fruit. 
There's no roots for the fruit. It's just lip service. Just lip service. Now, before we move on, there's something very important here. All right, again, just to help us be better equipped when we're, when we're talking to, to proponents of, of, uh, of salvation by works. We've already been defining what works is, right? But just to be a, a better, clear definition of it, works, according to Scripture, is any morally good act of righteousness. Any moral act of righteousness, that is what is considered a work, according to Scripture. That's, that's very important, according to Scripture. Not what is good according to man or tradition. Very important distinguish, uh, distinguishing point here. Why is that important? Because there are Roman Catholics, there are traditions of the faith that will say, salvation is by works, Therefore, pray ten Hail Marys, do confession, pay penance. But where is that in Scripture? Where is that in Scripture? The works that, that James is talking about here is all described in Scripture. It's nothing that man has created to say, this is how you get into heaven. It's no tradition that says, this is how you'll be justified before God. It's what is laid out in Scripture. Now, hypothetically speaking, say if I was completely wrong, right? And salvation was by works. Hypothetically speaking again, what would be the best work that you could do to get right with God? What would be the best work? Is it giving to the poor? Coming to church? Is it... What, what, is, what is the best work? Well, I, I think it's, it's important to hear what the best work or the, the, the main work that you could do for God from God himself, straight from sort of the horse's mouth, so to speak, right? Look at John chapter 6, verse 27 to 29. This is Jesus' great I am statement that he is the bread of life after feeding the 5,000. And he's talking to these people who, who chased after him because they, they want more food. What does Jesus say to them? Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. He's talking about salvation here, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then the people ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Here's the answer. Here's the best thing that you could do to get right with God according to Jesus Christ himself. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Even according to the word of God, if there's some, there's some sliver of idea that, idea that would crawl into our minds that it is by, by, by works that we are saved, Jesus, Jesus himself says, the work of God is this, is that you believe in him. But you have faith. That is the greatest thing that you could do. Greatest work that you could do to get right with God is to simply believe in Jesus Christ. Even the Savior himself says it. The greatest work of righteousness an individual, a sinner can do is to believe in him. Why? Because faith is a gift. Because faith is unnatural. It is impossible to the depraved human being. 
It is only accomplished through the regenerative work of the Spirit in our hearts. So for an individual to even be able to do that, to do that work, to believe, is a precious gift from God. It's a work of God. So James continues his comparisons of this active faith and this artificial faith. He says in verse 18 of our passage, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And of course, James responds says, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Again, evidence of true faith is fruit, it's works. Yet in this hypothetical, in this conversation that James is sort of having with the opponents of this, James deals with one of the possible responses of somebody, right? Again, he says, the question is, show me your faith apart from, my, apart from your works. But how does one show their faith apart from doing good things? Very simple. Okay, here, look what I know. Hear what I know. Right? I know that Jesus came down. He died on the cross. I, I know John 3.16. I memorize these passages. I know these verses. I know this, the, the doctrines of the reformers. I know, I know, I know. This is my faith. This is what James is addressing here. The natural response for someone who doesn't have works, who, 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 who isn't manifesting the fruit of, the, uh, of real faith, is that They'll point to what they know. I know these doctrines. I know the Bible inside out. I've gone to church, right? And in anticipation of this kind of response, this is what James says. He says in verse 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. James is addressing this this confession of faith that is just head knowledge. James says, good for you. Good for you that you know all of these things. Even the demons know and believe these things. But the difference is the demons shudder in response to the truths of the word of God. Meaning at least the demons have the appropriate reaction, the appropriate response to the truths of God, to the gospel of God. They shudder. James is comparing, again, this lip service that a person does and a person has who, who has dead faith to demons who know full well the truths of God and deliver an appropriate response to them, to the truths of God. Now notice, right? Notice that James says in our passage, he uses the phrase, you believe. You believe that God is one. You do well. And of course, he's talking about faith here. Now, opponents of, of justification by faith would say, well, see, it's not enough to have faith. You need to have works as well, right? Because that's sort of what James is saying. You, you have faith, but that's not enough. You need to have works as well. Again, James is not debating about justification by faith versus justification by works. If he was, he wouldn't have used this particular example of what people believe in, of what we put our faith in. Instead, instead of saying, you believe that God is one, you do well, he would have said, 
If he was an opponent of justification by faith, he would have said, you believe in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and his finished work in the grave and his bodily resurrection as sufficient forgiveness for your sins and your salvation? Good for you. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons know that. That's not what James is saying though, right? James doesn't dispute the object, the substance of our faith, the belief of our faith, and what grants us salvation. He's not talking about that. In fact, James is very specific. He's using choice words for what he's saying here. He says, you believe that God is one. That phrase is very specific to his Jewish audience. Remember, that's the context of this letter. Jewish converts. James is referring to the most recognizable verse in the Old Testament to to Orthodox Jews. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 5. It's it's, it's spoken every day in the morning. It's prayed every night in the evening. They start the day with it. They end the day with it. It's called the Shema. Oh, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James is referring to the Shema. James is specifically addressing Jewish converts who thought simply believing or simply knowing the basic orthodox doctrines of the faith was enough and that external fruits and works was unnecessary. He was addressing those mentalities. But listen, again, orthodoxy is not enough. Having a mind full of the basic doctrines of the faith is not evidence of conversion. Once again, a preacher once said that all of hell is orthodox because of this passage. They believe the truth of God. They believe that they believe in the triune God. They believe that God is one. All of hell is orthodox, but just because you are orthodox, just because you have these basic Doctrines of the faith, it doesn't, it's, it's not evidence of conversion. I mean, even agnostics, right? To some degree, they believe, even though they're not devoted to any faith or religion, they believe that there is a God somewhere. But simply believing that there is a God somewhere doesn't mean that you are saved. You know, the other week I was having a conversation with a, a supposed new believer. He's been going to church, went to Easter, put his hand up when there was an invitation, not here at our church, but a different church, and he was going through their alpha groups, and when I was asking him what his, what, where his faith was, and it was very evident that he was just parroting, repeating everything that the pastor was saying. But when I probed deeper, I asked him why. Like, why, why are you in this? Why are you doing this? Is Simple and honest response was, because I want to be more spiritual. I want to be more religious. To know more about what Christianity is really about. Well, if you want to be spiritual, if you want to be religious, so does the Buddhist, so does the, the, so does the Muslim, right? It's not enough to know about God or want to be Spiritual. It's not not enough that you fill your head with with head knowledge about what the doctrines of the faith. So here's the second difference between real faith and, and, and this fake faith. 
Real faith permeates. Real faith permeates. Real faith permeates every aspect of the believer, not just lip service, not just knowledge, everything. It's ironic that, that James quotes or he references the Shema because the rest of the Shema in Deuteronomy is what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. Jesus quotes the Shema in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great, this is the great and first commandment. See, real faith doesn't stick in the mind. That's intellectualism. Nor is it just some fluttering feeling in the heart that's emotionalism. Nor is it just by the works of our hands that's legalism. Real faith permeates throughout our entire being so that with our heart, mind, body, and soul, we, we love God and we pursue after Him and we long after Him. That every aspect of our being manifests a, a, a sense of desire to follow after God, to pursue Him, which ultimately manifests itself in good works. God says, be holy as I am holy. Therefore, our actions, our deeds, the words even that we speak, even the thoughts that we think, become transformed, ought to be holy. We, we desire and think differently. That's what James is getting at in our passage. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Is useless. A better translation, by the way, of this, there's a word missing here from the Greek. In, in verse 20, in the Greek, it says, hote he pistis. Really meaning that the faith, right? So when he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works, the real translation, what it ought to be translated as, that the faith apart from works is useless. Again, he's making that distinction, contrasting between two kinds of faith. One that doesn't have works and one that actually does have works as a fruit of true conversion. A transformative faith versus one that is not transformative. See, ultimately, this is the purpose of our salvation. To enable us to choose the things of God. To obey the commands of God. To love God with our entire being. That great commandment that Jesus talks about, God, about you know, loving God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our souls, with all our strength. That is impossible to do. Impossible to do without the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Without the Holy Spirit causing us to love God. And as we know, love is visible, right? It's an action. It's not just lip service. You demonstrate love. There's external indicators of love. It's more than a thought. It's more than a feeling Oftentimes, what governs our lives is what we love. You love your kids. You're going to do everything in your life that sort of revolves around kids. Parents, you know this. 
You love your, you love your wife, you love your job, you love your career, whatever it is, your life will go towards that direction. It's the same thing for our love for God. Everything that we do in our life, everything that we think and everything that we feel, everything that we say ought to point to our love for God. It manifests itself. That, that, that internal love manifests itself. It, because again, real faith permeates through our entire being. Lastly, real faith persists. I'll just give you that point. Real faith persists. It perseveres. In verse 21 of our passage, we see the two examples of real faith that James gives of Abraham and Rahab. Let's read this. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, we get to the sort of problematic part of our passage, when it, at least at face value, it's saying that someone is justified by works and not by faith, not by faith alone. But we have to unpack the words here in the original Greek. This is why study of Scripture is so important. In the original Greek, with the word justified, this is the word that's problematic, right? This is the one that's confusing us, justified. In the original Greek, the word justified is dakaio. Simply meaning, it is, in its, its bare understanding, simply meaning to show to be righteous. Showing that something is righteous. That is the first and primary definition of it. It's often, because it's often used in the context of person to person. Actually, in the court of law, someone is justified, meaning this person has, has proven his innocence. He's been showed to be righteous, so showed to be good. That's a plain understanding of this word for justified. But yet, in the context of God and man, it takes a secondary definition, meaning it, it means to be declared or made righteous. Completely different. One is to be shown righteous. You've proven yourself now that you're righteous. You've been shown that you're righteous. The other, again, in the context of God and man, when God declares someone justified, he says it means that you have been made righteous. Completely different. Completely different understanding. Now, we see this throughout Scripture, sort of this back and forth on these different understandings. For example, in, in Luke chapter 10, if you know the story about this lawyer who came to test Jesus, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And again, Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God. Again, here's the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, and this is starting at verse 25. And then Jesus says, okay, you answered correctly, good, you know, go and, and, and live that out. But then it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, this lawyer, it says, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? And then Jesus goes into this, the, the parable of the, uh, the good Samaritan. So here's a question, right? 
This word of justification in this passage in Luke, is it referring to being shown righteous or being made righteous? It's being shown righteous. This lawyer wanting to prove to everybody else that, hey, I'm smart, I'm good, I'm righteous. He says, by desiring to justify himself, to show that he is smart, intellectual, righteous, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We want to be shown righteous. Now, context of Romans chapter 3, verse 20 now. When Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, talking about God, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Is, it, is the word there being used as to be shown righteous or be made righteous? The answer is to be made righteous. For by works of the law, no human, human being will be made righteous in the sight of God. That's the context of that word in Romans. Let's go back to James now. Understanding those two, those two definitions or two understandings of, of that word. Context of James and the story of Abraham. Is it, did, did Abraham, was Abraham justified? Was he shown righteous by offering Isaac on the altar? Or was he made righteous by offering Isaac on the altar. I will show you why it's shown righteous and not made righteous. Very simply. Look at this. James is talking about two events in Abraham's life, right? He's saying, again, was not Abraham our father justified where he works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? That's one event in Abraham's life. All right? Second event. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the second event that James brings up. When, when, when God declares Abraham righteous for believing in him. Those are two events. Here's a question now. Which came first? Which came first? Come on, my... My Bible students, come on, my, those who study the Bible, which came first? Justification of Abraham because he believed in God? He was made righteous by believing God? Or the sacrifice of Isaac, which came first? He believed first. Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This was after God had made the covenant with Abraham, after God changed his name, after God promised him that he would make him a father of many nations. It says at the very end there, Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God made him righteousness as a result of that faith he had at that moment that God promised that covenant with him. A few years later, chapter 22 of Genesis, years after, when Isaac was finally born, when, when he's no longer a baby and he's fully grown, it says that after all of that, when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, he was declared, God, or rather, years after God had declared him righteous, this, this offering of Isaac was evidence of that faith that was already 
planted in, that, that belief that was already there at the beginning. So we can't take James to mean that Abraham was made righteous as a result of trying to sacrifice his son in chapter 22 when he was already made, declared righteous by God himself in chapter 15 of Genesis. What is James trying to say in our passage then, if that's the case? Well, verse 22 here is key. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Completed, meaning perfected, meaning brought to its end, to its pinnacle, to the ripeness of fruit. James is saying the extent of Abraham's faith that was, was evident when God made a covenant with him was fully displayed, fully shown when he offered Isaac on the altar. Abraham was shown to be righteous when his faith, being active, was demonstrated in, in, in sacrificing his only son. He was shown to be righteous. Even in verse 24 of the passage, it says, you see that a person is justified. Same, same context here. Shown to be righteous by works and not by faith alone. That's what he's saying. Well, that's what James is saying in verse 24 as well. Again, James is not talking or arguing about salvation by works here. He's comparing active faith an act of faith like Abraham that produces fruit versus a faith that is dead and has no fruit. Abraham's, Abraham shows his faith. He's shown to be righteous by his, by his work of offering Isaac. And it's the same thing with the story of Rahab in verse 25. Right? At first value, it seems like, it says again, verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. If you know the story of Rahab and hiding the spies in Jericho and Joshua chapter 2. And it seems like at face value, it seems like, well, okay, it's her, it's her act of hiding the spies that justified her, made her righteous, right? Not at all. Look at Joshua chapter 22, verse, just very quickly with me. And this is Joshua chapter 2, rather. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. This is what Rahab says to the spies after she's, she's hidden them. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And in verse 11, listen to this. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab had faith before she, had, before she hid the spies. Rahab is already declaring God as, as Lord, Adonai. Her heart had melted already, knowing what the Lord, the real God of the heavens and earth, had done to the other kingdoms. 
And that faith, that belief, manifested itself in taking care of the spies, hiding the spies. She was shown to be righteous. Her, her, her faith was justified by her action of hiding the spies. But her faith was... Her, her faith was already planted in her heart long before the Israelites came to Jericho. She had already feared the Lord. She had already declared God as the Lord of heaven and earth. Now all of that to say, James is talking about being justified before man. Showing others of the faith that we have, the righteousness that we have had or, or, or been made righteous already. Not that, not that our works is what makes us righteous. Now, in the, in the midst of all of that illustration and expl explanation, we get this very simple truth about real faith. And that is real faith perseveres. The fruit of Abraham's faith shows itself years later when he is old and asked to do the most difficult thing a parent can do, offer up his son. Rahab's faith is revealed while under the roof of Jericho under the threat of her life being taken away. Real faith perseveres under the most difficult circumstances of our lives. And in fact, bears fruit, much fruit, even in hardship. Fake faith, artificial faith, does not. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about the, the, the seeds that were thrown into the rocky ground. And he says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, that he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. That's fake faith. That's a faith that falls away. So here's the question for all of us this morning as we come to a close here. What kind of faith do you have? Very simple. What kind of faith do you have? You have a faith that produces fruit. That the, the, the internal workings of, of God's regenerative work in our hearts manifests itself in, in outward joy, in external patience, in outward acts of holiness. Does it produce fruit? Does the faith that you have permeate throughout your entire being, not just in your mind, not just head knowledge, not just an emotional feeling that you might feel here at church or not just the things that you do. Does it permeate your entire being? Does it impact every aspect of who you are, your entire identity? Does your faith persist? Does it persevere even in the most difficult circumstances? See, at the end of the day, that is the kind of faith that Christ himself afforded us by his death on the cross. That Christ gifted to us by his death, death on the cross. Thanks for listening. 
We hope that you are blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.